That was obviously for me. All right. So uh, welcome, everybody. This is an extraordinary treat to talk to Barry. And Barry, I want to start. We were just in the green room, and I said to you and your colleagues, uh, you guys okay? And your answer was, I'm never okay. That's right, yeah. You know, um, the Jews have an expression which is called the kunahara, which is you never want to acknowledge that anything is good because if it's a beautiful day and you're on a picnic and you go how great is today you fear that god is going to hear you and create an instant thunderstorm so you, so you're better off i always say um there's no upside to optimism that you're better off just being a pessimist because then you're never disappointed fantastic and by the way uh, just so i don't forget i just read barry's book which is absolutely Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and uh, we're going to talk more about that. Mm -hmm. So you are famously neurotic. Thank you. <laughs> and my understanding is that uh, many of us are all excited. Curb Your Enthusiasm is coming back Sunday night. Larry David, very famous, is perhaps the most neurotic man in America. No, nope. second most. Second most. That's Tell right. that story, Cheryl Hines, you and Larry. Oh, so I've worked with Cheryl Hines a bunch of times, you know, on RV and other things. And obviously Cheryl was on the original Curb for many years. And Larry, David, and I know each other a little bit. And um, both Larry and I would ask Cheryl who's more neurotic, Larry or myself. And Cheryl would refuse to answer because she, she knew whoever came in second would be disappointed as being the second most neurotic person. And she was on the Letterman show one night, and Letterman... I was on Letterman a bunch of times, and um, Letterman asked Cheryl about me, and she, she told the story and said, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Barry is the most neurotic person I've ever met. Cut to about a year later, um, having breakfast at the Lowe's Regency on Park, and from across the room, I hear someone screaming at me, Sonnenfeld, you claim you're more neurotic than me, but you're having eggs with yolks? and bacon, and I yelled, burnt bacon, and, uh, and, and butter on your toast. So he, uh, we started to yell at each other across the lows. And in fact, Donald Trump was uh, in the room that day, so I hope I ruined his breakfast. <laughs> this is pre-President pre, uh, Trump. Fantastic. So you're a New York kid. You go to NYU to film school. You graduate in 1978. Four years later, you're directing and working cinematographer, cinematographer right. for an Oscar-nominated film. How does that happen in four years? Um, my dad, and I write about this in the book, always said, don't pick a profession. Find something that you really want to do in life, and you'll find a way to make money doing it. Like, my parents never wanted me, even though they were horrible, uh, and both were very narcissistic. They, neither one wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. My mother wanted me to be an artist of some kind, and my dad probably wanted me to be a salesman. Um, but my dad said, just figure out what you want to do in life. So when I graduated NYU film school, graduate film school, I knew I had an ability uh, to be a cameraman. So I bought, and this is pre-video, so I bought a U16 millimeter camera because I thought if I owned a camera, I could call myself a cameraman without being a dilettante. Right. So cut to, I'm at a, a Christmas party 
one night, and they're all wasps from Darien, Connecticut, except for two Jews. Me and this tall guy with curly hair that looked a little bit like Howard Stern, and that was Joel Cohen. We sort of smelled each other or something, started to talk, and Joel said that he and his brother Ethan had just written the script for Blood Simple, and they were going to shoot a trailer as if it was a finished movie and use that trailer to raise money. Right. So I said, well, I own a camera, and Joel said, you're hired. So Joel and Ethan and I shot the, the trailer for Blood Simple. It looked great. Uh, it took us a year to raise the $750,000 to make Blood Simple. And here's the thing. The first day on the set of Blood Simple was the first day that Joel, Ethan, or I had ever been on a movie set. I had never shot a feature before. Joel had never directed. Ethan had never produced. But we all declared what we were in life. And by declaring what you are in life, sometimes that's all you need to do. But before that, you cut your teeth in, in an porn unusual up. way in, in porn. In porn. Uh, because I owned that 16 millimeter camera, uh, and I had bought it with a friend, so we each owned another cameraman, he got us a job shooting nine feature length pornos in nine days, a porno a day. So you would spend about 15 minutes in the dialogue stuff, and then you'd sh spend about another 20 minutes shooting various sexual positions. And then you would wait four hours for the cum shot. Because none of these guys could have an orgasm because they've trained themselves not to. So you know, you would take naps because we were working like 20 hour days. And then at some point, you would hear the poor guy go, ready. And then you would bring the two cameras there. And then you, one of us would whisper, he's soft. And then you'd go back and take another nap. So that was the beginning of my career in the film business. Fantastic. And you start this long association with the Coen brothers. Right. And then in 89, one of iconic film in the American film canon, working with Rob Reiner on When Harry Met Sally. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> so there were many When Harry Met Sally stories. So I, I, got a, I met Rob, and he hired me. And I remember early on in pre-production, there, uh, there was a magazine called Premier Magazine. It was mm -hmm. uh, about the film business. Uh, and uh, in fact, I was quoted in Premier. There was an article on Brian Grazer, and I was, who's a producer for Ron Howard. They own a company. I was quoted as saying, uh, Brian Grazer is an idiot savant without the savant part. Mm -hmm. And that got me into a lot of trouble. So I had to apologize because it was just a joke. He's actually not stupid. Um, but anyway, early on, Rob, there's a photo of Michelle Pfeiffer on the cover of um, Premier Magazine. And he says, you know, Rob says, I th I'm thinking about dating Michelle Pfeiffer. And I go, well, you can do that, but the Michelle you're going to marry is a friend of mine, and I'm going to introduce you to her. Her name's Michelle Singer. Cut to, I, we set up, a, my wife and I set up a day with Rob and Michelle, and they get married. Amazing. So what I should have done, instead of saying you're going to marry Michelle, I should have said, you're going to give me $10 million. Because I seemed, whatever I said, Rob seemed to be willing to follow through on. But yes, I was there for the famous. Um, I'll have what she's having seen. And Rob was, um, 
Which was Rob's mother. Which was Rob's mother. And Rob sweats a lot. And we're at Katz's Deli, so there's all those steam, you know, steam tables and the doors are closed because of traffic, so it's incredibly hot in there. Rob is wearing a towel just to absorb the sweat, saying to me on his head, saying, am I an idiot? I've, I'm directing a woman faking an orgasm while my mother is watching all this, but it was a great scene and we, uh, we pulled it off. And that was Estelle Reiner, Carl Reiner's wife, of That's course, right. who famously has cameos in many of Rob's films. Oh, does she? I, didn't, yeah. I only amazing. know her uh, from amazing. that one, yeah. Now, you make this amazing transition. You're the DP on Misery, another incredible film, and then you get a phone call and an offer to direct. Right. I was very happy as a cinematographer. I wasn't looking to become a director. But uh, Scott Rudin, who's an incredibly great producer, um, sent me. I was two weeks from finishing Misery, and I was at the Four Seasons Hotel with my wife watching the Indianapolis 500. It was a Sunday. And, uh, uh, and uh, I got a call from the lobby saying, uh, Scott Rudin has uh, dropped off a script for you. He wants you to read it and meet him in two hours at Hugo's restaurant. Little did he know I can't read a script in two hours. I'm a really slow reader, but I got through it and met him. And he said, I, I want you to direct Adam's family. And I said, why me? And he said, because all the good directors turned it down. He had gone to Tim Burton. He had gone to Terry Gilliam. And I think he felt he wanted instead of just any comedy director, he wanted a visual stylist, which is what I did for the Coens and Danny DeVito on Throw Mama from yep. the Train and Three O'Clock High. So um, uh, I said, look, if you can get me the job directing, fine. And I grew up, you know, reading the New Yorker, mm -hmm. looking at all those Charles Adams cartoons, which I love. They're incredibly visual. And uh, they're like a story in a single frame. So I got hired to direct the movie, and it was an incredibly painful experience. Directing is incredibly painful almost always. But because of the amount of downtime? No, because of the amount of stress. OK. Um, you're, it's just a really stressful profession. Because there is hundreds of people looking at you to have answers to everything. And you then get another phone call and sign up, evidently, for more pain when Steven Spielberg calls you. Well, Spielberg was late to that party, actually. Um, we're talking about Men in Black. Um, I was hired uh, by uh, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, who uh, had a deal at Sony. Um, it took years to get that movie made. I quit to go do Get Shorty. They hired another director. They fired the other director. I saw the uh, head of production of Sony having uh, brunch with Uma Thurman at the Ivy at the Shore. And I went up to this guy, Barry Josephson, and I said, hey, listen, I hear you fired that other guy. If you want, I'll come back on Men in Black. So I came back a second time. Uh, another, oh, by the way, so Spielberg and everyone at Sony wanted Clint Eastwood and Chris O'Donnell. Mm. And when my wife, Sweetie, and I read the script, she gives me a 60-page head start on reading. We finished simultaneously. I turn to her and say, Tommy Lee Jones. She turns to me and says, Will Smith. And this is just off of Fresh Prince. So now Spielberg has me go to dinner with Chris O'Donnell 
and says, get Chris. You got, we want Chris. So I go to dinner with Chris at the Four Seasons, again, in LA. And Chris says, you know, I have two offers. I'm not sure about Men in Black. I've got this other uh, movie, rock climbing movie. And I go, you should take that one. Men in Black, the script <laughs> will never be good. I don't know how to direct. I'm a, not a good director. And if I were you, I would not take this movie. So he passes. So now I get Will Smith to come out to the Hamptons where I used to live and Spielberg used to summer. Will has a wedding in Philly, flies out to East Hampton, helicopters out to East Hampton. Spielberg agrees that Will's the right guy. So that's how we got Will. And I was lucky to get Tommy also. So when people talk about your work, one of the words that comes up often is offbeat. I call it quirky, but yes. Okay, same word. quirky, offbeat. And we started our conversation talking about being a little neurotic, which as a fellow Jew, I, I share that trait with you. Nice to be welcome. <laughs> I like how you and Joel Cohen kind of smelled each other. Yeah, right. right. Um, talk about how that characteristic and what you make and your vision, how those two might connect in some way. I'm an only child. Um, I had a really weird upbringing, so I've always sort of seen things off kilter. Um, I've always sort of, uh, sort of had a sort of visual uh, viewpoint towards life, and um, I, I just see things uh, skewed towards quirky. Uh, you know, I, don't hire me to direct a legal drama. I'm not interested, and I wouldn't do a good job. In fact, I was hired to do a legal dra drama for NBC, and I didn't do a good job, and it never got beyond the pilot. So there you go. And the book is unusual in that quirky. it really, let's, let's stay with quirky. You jump all over the place. Thank there you. There are these incredible stories. They're all kind of short and kind of punchy. Um, and it's an incredibly honest book, the way right. you talk about your parents. My dad also, not a great guy. So I understand what you're saying. And like you're sweetie, I have my Isla, wonderful partner in life. But was it easy or hard to write something? You're really honest in this book. That's unusual. Uh, I'm adorable and guileless and, uh, and honest. It was incredibly easy. I would sit down and write 40 pages a day. In fact, David Granger and Brant Rumble, Brant was the editor, and Granger is a good friend of mine who's now my literary agent, but before that was the editor-in-chief of Esquire. And I, uh, for 10 years, I had a column called The Digital Man for Esquire. But we cut out 40% of the book. I had, I had written another eight or 10 chapters. It just, I just vomited it out. Um, uh, but I am very honest, you know, I, yes, I was molested as a, a child, but I don't define myself in those terms. Uh, yes, my parents knew I was being molested, in fact. By, by your uncle? Uh, cousin, cousin, CM the CM, cousin Mike the child molester. Um, uh, uh, my neighbor, who uh, was also molested when I was growing up in Washington Heights, wrote a piece for Slate about being molested. He didn't say who molested him. And um, I emailed 
this person and I said, CM the CM? And he said, yes. Mm -hmm. So I had breakfast with this guy and then his life was kind of ruined by it. Mine wasn't. And I immediately went up to my dad's apartment at the Dorchester on like 64th and Broadway, one of those white brick buildings. And I said, Dad, did you, did you hate mom so much that you let Cousin Mike molest all of us just so mom had someone to hang out with? Because mom never got a driver's license claiming that children of epilepsy uh, children of parents who are epileptic can't get New York State driver's license. Not true. My mother was a pathological liar. So my dad says, well, Barry, three things. First of all, back then, child molestation didn't have the same stigma it has now. Not a good you, you wonder why I'm quirky. Two, remember your mother was so upset because I was having all these affairs that I thought having Mike around would cheer her up. And three, I never thought Mike was molesting you. I only thought he was playing with your penis. At which point you go tilt, see around, you leave, you get painful sciatica, you crawl back to your apartment in the uh, financial district, and you just sort of weep for a day because you keep thinking, maybe they didn't know. You kind of hope that maybe they didn't know, but he just acknowledged it in a very, very relaxed way. But that's, that's not really what the book's about, no, but it's, no, no. it's there. Yeah, yeah, but it's there. And, and the variety and just the amount of ground you cover. Talk about the title and where that right. comes from and Jimi Hendrix. Okay, the title of the book is Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Uh, in 1970, I was a senior at the Music and Art High School. I was a French horn player. and. Uh, um, it's 2.20 in the morning. It's the first uh, uh, anti-Vietnam protest concert, Madison Square Garden, 19,600 people, 2.20 in the morning. Jimi Hendrix is warming up for the second time when over the loudspeaker at Madison Square Garden comes the following announcement. Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. <laughs> so let's talk about this, shall we? Let's break it down. First of all, the fact that she had that kind of strength and willpower to get anyone to answer the phone and get to the point where I get, get paid. So several things happen. One, I start to weep uncontrollably because I, I know my father is dead. Two, by standing up, I've announced to my section of blue seats, I am Barry Sonnenfeld. And since we're at Madison Square Garden, the chant of Barry, Barry starts to waft down towards the red seats and the orange seats. I don't know if Jimmy heard it or not, but I go to the pay phone, because this is pre-cell phones, pre-pagers. Weeping, it's 2.20, I go, hi, mom, who's dead? She says, <clears throat> I thought you were dead. I said, why? You said you'd be home at two, it's 2.20. I said, didn't they tell you the concert was still going on? Yes, but they couldn't prove you were there. Okay, so Jimmy, at this point, walks off the stage. <laughs> and that, uh, and uh, I remember um, uh, uh, Peter Yarrow announcing, ladies and gentlemen, the cast of hair. And they, they're singing Let the Sunshine. And as 
me and my girlfriend at the time leave to go back to Washington Heights so mom would stop crying. Amazing, amazing. And that is, that is the title of the book, Call Your Mother. So, By the way, she also said if I went to sleepaway school, others call it college, she would commit suicide. So I spent three years living at home in Washington Heights and attending NYU in the Bronx. They used to have a comp campus in the Bronx. Right. And then when I was going to be a senior, I realized, wait, I can go away to college and my mother commits suicide, two birds, one stone. Right. So I transferred to Hampshire College as a senior and my mother reneges on the promise. And my, obviously my dad wasn't dead, so. And among the chapters in the book, CM the CM, su several chapters on suicide, and yet somehow it's incredibly entertaining uh, and <laughs> you find humor in all this, which is yeah, a, a miracle. You have to. Okay, couple things, uh, true or not true. Crash in a plane in Van Nuys Airport, crashing into five planes on a landing, nobody gets hurt. Yes, totally true. Uh, Sony sent a private jet for me, uh, uh, Sony Television. The plane crashes in Van Nuys Airport. At 14,000 feet, I know we're out of control. We're nose diving. So whenever things get really hectic, I get really calm. So I tried different line readings of, and now I die. So I went, and now I die. Then I went, and now, I just put the em emphasis on each different word just to get through. Uh, and then I ran out of, and now we die. Um, the pilot, co-pilot, flight attendant, because I'm alone on a plane, abandon the plane and leave me on it. Uh, the fire de department races because there's jet fuel everywhere. They're yelling at me to jump, and my fear of flying is only second to my fear of heights. So I'm saying to all these guys, you're saying jump, but which one's going to catch me? And they're going, it doesn't matter, just get off the plane. I go, you, you find the, the fireman with the biggest mustache, because they all have mustaches. I go, you, you're, you're catching me. He goes, I don't give up just get off the plane. I, I wasn't that high. I just sort of leaned onto his shoulder and sort of swung to the ground, and we all fled. Amazing story. And true or not true, offered Forrest Gump. I developed Forrest Gump. I was the one who got Tom Hanks on board because I had shot big for Penny Marshall, and Hanks and I had become good friends. But um, I had a choice between uh, Adam's Family Values, because I shot at, I directed Adam's Family, or Forrest Gump, and I was directing a movie with Michael J. Fox, who said, you set the table, now eat the meal. You have to do the sequel. So right. I gave up Gump. Amazing. And let's talk about Schmigadoon on Apple, which is uh, incredible. I, I had a great time. Uh, if you haven't seen Schmigadoon, it's a uh, joy to shoot. We shot it in Vancouver during COVID, 43 days. No, no problems, and loved that cast. Loved everything about it. And what's your take on, I see it's zero. Okay. What, what, thank you. What's your take on the whole rise of the Apple TVs and the Amazons? And consumers never been better, but what's your take? Uh, I think it's say? great. I think it's great because the writing is so much better. Uh, all these streaming services aren't worried about you know, studios now, feature film studios, release a, a movie a month. One movie fails, and the head of the studio gets fired. Right. Uh, streamers, you could do 
eight things that don't work and one that works in a huge way, and no, those shareholders aren't saying, we got to get rid of this person. So I think that streamers are doing much more interesting things than, than film studios are these days. So I think it's great. And tell us something we don't know that you're working on. I'll be honest with you, you never, ever, ever know what's next. I, I could tell you 11 things I'm working on, and none of those things will come to fruition. And something I don't even know about right now will. So good luck to me. And, and you inadvertently just led us to a rap, which I want to read so I get it right, which is the epilogue in the book. Right. And you write, a miracle is what seems impossible, but happens anyway. Here I am. I'm the miracle. And I thought that was so poignant. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you.